The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. Continue from episode one with Tom Culpepper and the guys from Savage Actual. Yeah, and, and did you see all the, all the other PJs that come in for the graduation? Uh, and then there's Charlie, the, the PJ doll, which you can Google that one, uh, huh. who, uh, a little tiki doll from Burma, uh, causes plenty of fights, but, uh, you know, all these things are there and the history that comes with it and the legacies. And you, yeah. you realize that you're now attached to these people who were, you know, Sante Raiders and Medal of Honor recipients, and you're on the short list with them. Uh, and yeah. it's just humbling. Like, you're like, yeah. when are they going to take it away? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. It really is. And that's really for our listeners out there. You know, all from our respective soft branches. That's day one. Yeah, I mean that's when it that's when it really starts. All of this has led to you know a lot of people think you come out of buds or whatnot like a fucking ninja, right? And I use buds as like the overall every one of these soft units, right? You're whatever MOS producing school. You come out of it a ninja, like nah, dude. Like you, you, you paid your dues just to get to this fucking point, and you're yeah, starting, you're, you're you're the new guy starting, again. You're starting all. You're you're about as basic as they come. You're about as green. It doesn't mean cool, bro. You made it. Like welcome. And now it's now today begins. Yeah, um, there were three of us, no, two of us from that class that went to the, my uh, the 58th rescue at Nellis, uh, and we're rolling in there, and we're the entire unit. We were PJs number 12 and 13. Like, it was tiny. Wow. Um, that, that wasn't uncommon. We were one of the furthest from the flagpole on the ACC rescue side. Um, so, a little background. The PJs are split between two major commands in the Air Force. You have the ones on ACC who are more traditional rescue. Uh, and then you have the ones on the ST side that work for AFSOC and SOCOM uh, that do a little bit more of the soft mission set. Honestly, they jump back and forth like crazy. And I worked on both sides, but, um, there is a division there and kind hmm. of some command constraints. But anyway, I got there, we're 12 and 13. And just like you said, they, okay, here's your training book. Uh, you've got 300 line items to get done. Um, you come tell us how you're going to get them done. You know, if you, if you want some help, come find us and ask, don't like, you're not getting, none of this is going to be given to you. Go figure it out. Um, and that, that was, that was it from day one. Like you want to do this? Here it is. You qualified to be here now. Now you got to get the rest of it. And the, the mountain of knowledge you pick up in those first couple of years is just insane. I bet. The things you, you don't know that you didn't know, just it's it's incredible. Um, so, yeah, it's a, t- it's a ton of work to actually become a proficient operator um, in any sort of capacity that you start to feel a little bit confident in your skills. Uh, that You can go out and do these things without other people, um, which is – uh, the way we deploy a lot, we'll end up with one or two PJs on a team of SEALs. You're the only one who knows what you know. And so when it becomes your task set, they don't care if you're an E3 or an E7. You're running that task set for the entire team, and you've got to be on it. And, uh, and that's kind of a, another daunting side of that whole the whole PJ side of things and the way we do stuff. But, yeah, you, you're back to zero. You know, you're, you're the guy taking out the trash every day. You're the guy cleaning the floors. And you're the guy that's planning your own training to make sure you get where you want to be. Uh, and there's a weed out process in that too. And that's where some of the people don't make it. You know, you've now spent two to three years in the pipeline. If you're on a four year enlistment, well, some guys may not decide, okay, I'm done with this. I, I made the thing and they're out at four, you know, after a year on the team. Wow. That's crazy. And never, never deployed, never really did anything significant. That's that's crazy. That's a crazy thought to think that you could spend three years going through all that training process, get to your team, do the. We have a similar thing with the. You you got to got to go through all your certs and everything like that, and then just, well, now I'm at four. I got to go, or I don't want to do this anymore, or whatever. 
Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Well, it's, it's a humbling thing to go like you, you're standing there at graduation day. You're king of the mountain. Like you've done this thing. And then you realize, well, I'm just going over here. And all these guys are further up this mountain. I'm just now at the base of this one. Real world experience. Oh, rounds yeah. down range, probably purple heart recipients, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It was the height of the war for our listeners out there. You know, a lot of listeners now are quite a bit younger and don't realize like, dude, it was a war from 01 to like 12 hard, you know, Iraq, 90% of that, you know? So it, yeah. I mean, I remember getting to my own unit at the same time, you know, you, like you said, king of the mountain, king of the world, have his time and you get there and it's like, it's, you gotta, it's, I think there's always that cycle of humble pie. You're always like, it's always a constant ego check. Cause there's always someone stronger, better, better looking, smarter, you know, like, in fact, I, it's, it's pretty overwhelming, you know? And I think in the soft communities, the being the gray man, being the silent professional is really driven into our communities. Like I don't know shit that the eager, the, the hunger for, for learning and success, I think is what makes a good operator across the board. So yeah, you get to this unit, man, like walk us through, you know, when do you first deploy? Uh, so first deployment, honestly, don't remember the, probably two years later, uh, in the way the rotation, uh, went to, uh, went to Djibouti, uh, when it was still a tent city down there. It's vastly different now from what I hear. I haven't been there in a long time, but, uh, you know, we're still hanging out in tents and it was, uh, honestly, that deployment was mostly, uh, a really good training opportunity. It's about the best I can, cause you, you were overseas. So all the, all the red tape and rules around training went away. Um, and really we were poised for what was either going to be a whole lot of nothing or the mission of the year. Um, cause you know, it was going to involve free fall jumps into Somalia and, you know, dragging 53s behind us and pull it. Like it was going to be the mission of the year. If we, if anything happened, nothing happened. We did a lot of good training. Um, you know, hung out with, uh, got to do a lot of good stuff, hung out with the, uh, with the French foreign legion, which yep. I didn't realize was actually a thing until then. Yep. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they've they got a big training base right down the street there. And, uh, so we did a lot of hanging out with them. Um, really just the first time, like, again, going back to kind of that, that in doc training world where you got to shut out the rest of the world and just, just go learn to do your thing. Uh, it was learned a ton, didn't do a whole lot else besides that. Um, had a really good time. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was the first one. I uh, went back to Djibouti two years later, I think. Two or three years later, um, things were a little bit spicier. Uh, Somalia kicked up a bit more. And um, again, it was largely a quiet deployment. Um, a lot of good just training opportunities, things like that. Um, but not a whole lot actually happening. Um, through luck or not luck. You know, we, we had to stage up for a couple of things and, uh, and stuff like that. But nothing I would call crazy. Um, and then... But, you know, at that time, I'd gone from my first deployment, I was a team member. By the second deployment, I was an element leader or basically assistant team leader. So I was running a team of like four guys, essentially. Um, my third deployment was about four years after that to Afghanistan. I uh, went to, uh, it was around 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, this was, it was 2010. I don't know. The dates are all jumbled in my head, but you sound, like, you sound like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Know the feeling. Yeah. So I, I was at that point. I qualified. I was a PJ team leader, which was another one of those moments. I'm like, holy shit! I'm a PJ <laughs> team leader. You know, that was a huge thing for me. And brother, how, how big are your teams on these deployments? Uh, it varies a bit by what we're doing. Uh, on the again, I was still with the ACC rescue side of the house, uh, so I was running a. It's a seven-man team between uh, primarily – well, so I, I split. I started rotary wing. We were flying uh, – we had two Blackhawks, uh, the Pedros. If you guys are, you know, know the call sign, we were Pedro for a while. Um, and I ran the – so we had four guys on each bird. Um, and I ran those for about three months. Uh, and then through a series of events, I ended up getting pulled down to lead the fixed wing team. So this was a Kandahar. Uh, and then I went down to the fixed wing team in Bastion, which was our jump team. 
Uh, I ran that for another couple months, uh, and that was, I'll say that was a six-man team somewhere. Were, in you, the guys, were you guys? Uh, were you guys at Calero at Baston at the ODA base right there by the Chow Hall? Uh, no, we were right over by the flight line. Um, okay. Kind of distant away, so because we, we had to be right by the birds for for launch Got and it. stuff. We had our own little compound over there. Uh, yeah, very very familiar with Baston. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys did own the place, minus one little spot up in the corner uh, and the Brits had theirs there too. But uh, yeah. Um, so those are, and honestly, that was really the, the bulk of my deployments. I somehow didn't get a whole lot of them. Um, I had some really interesting stuff happen on them, but uh, did a lot more, uh, you know, after that I rotated in being an instructor for a while and then up to uh, DASOC with some smaller stuff. Um, but uh, those are, those are the three big deployments I had. Um, and uh Afghanistan being the most interesting of those, as you can probably imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah, you want to you want to talk about that uh, the situation a little bit and. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just let I'll let you I'll let you go through that, man, because it's uh, it's uh, I've heard some of the basic details and I have I haven't read up on it, but uh, you know. I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're, about you're it a little bit. Yeah. I'm assuming you're hinting towards the uh, DFC distinguished line cross. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, Afghanistan was, was really good. Um, I mean, I'm out there, I've got my team, I'm taking, I'm getting to lead my team into combat to save lives. It doesn't get any better. You know, um, we're, we're launching on things, we're going out and we're making it, we're making a difference, pick people up. Um, today's episode is sponsored by GPM kit. GPM kit makes the combat applications belt. It's the first belt designed and patented by special operations personnel. Designed to be the lightest, strongest belt on the market, the Combat Applications Belt is a unique, buckle-free belt made as tough as the people who wear it. Go to gpmkit.com for more information on their incredible belt line. And I'm starting to feel like finally we're in the position where I'm given second chances where there was no second chances. Like this team is being able to bring people home that wouldn't have made it any other way um, just because they're the best selected, best trained, best equipped, and given the most permission to go out and do this. Uh, and it was truly awesome for me. Uh, I can't just, it was awesome. Um, and uh, particular to uh, one mission, uh, and we had a bunch of crazy ones that <laughs> I could tell stories on missions from Afghanistan all night um, or all day. But one in particular, um, there was a team of uh, scouts that were out near near the border, um, and they were watching IED precursors come over the border. And uh, they're watching the intel going out and trying to prevent precursors from coming over the border. And they figured out they basically sneak in these little trailers. Uh, they get them just over the border, kind of hide them in an arroyo um, in a wadi. And, uh, and then people <laughs> from Afghanistan would come pick them up. And, uh, and they were going out and they were blowing them up left and right. They would just, they would find these trailers and blow them, blow them, blow them. Well, this particular day they went out on another trailer. It was like a, one of those truck bed trailers. You know, truck bed turned into a trailer that was full of precursors. Um, it was down in a wadi. And this team went in to, uh, to blow it again. And this one was a booby trap. Um, it was rigged like no other. Uh, so somebody touched it. As soon as they touched it, this thing goes kaboom, um, sent people flying and it was a full on ambush. So they had set, uh, uh, they knew that as soon as they got hit, they were, this team was going to push to the high ground. So straight up the side of the wadi onto this, there's a little road up here. They did exactly that for their tactics. And there was more IDs waiting for them up there. So they're, they're now getting hit more and shot at, um, we get called in because the team sergeant and a couple of his guys or the team sergeant had been blown off this road down about halfway down, about a hundred meters down into this wadi, um, just kind of airborne catapult. And two of his team members have gone down after him and they get down there and realize from where they're sitting in this little V cut on the side of the hill, they can see six IEDs like yeah. just visually from where they're sitting. Um, so they know they need to get this guy out of here. He's, uh, at this point, I 
he was at least a double, if not a tri amputee, um, you know, in and out of consciousness kind of thing. Big dude, they know they got to get him out. Um, the only asset that has any chance of this at this point is Pedro with the hoist, because uh, Dustoff doesn't do that kind of work. Um, so they called us in. We're flying out, and uh, you know, the Cobra gunships are still out there suppressing things, putting things down. Um, but since we are a combatant aircraft, not uh, a traditional medic aircraft, we also are offensive. Um, so they let us in. We get in. Uh, things mostly quieted down. Uh, there were only a few pop-ups while we were there. And, what uh, time of day was this, man? Middle of the day. Okay. Middle of the Jeez. day. Hot, middle of summer, middle of the day. Um, they they got hit. It was kind of mid-morning when they got hit. It then took a little while for everything to roll. Where exactly? Is it, what province is this? Honestly, I don't remember. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. We were over... Yeah, I, I don't remember. I'll give you. I'll you, guys it. Flew out of, you guys flew out of Bastion to this? No, so we're flying out of Kandahar with rotary wing. Okay. 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 Yeah, so it's, you know, it was only fixed wing out of Bastion. There was a small rotary wing team down there. but um, So we get out there, and uh, I made the decision to put myself and two of my guys in, um, hoist down to, to get these three dudes out of here. And uh, so we, we set for a real high hover to try not to hit any uh, pressure plates with the downwash. We get in with uh, with our gear and uh, start assessing what's going on. And sure, sure enough, you're sitting there in this thing, and you can see them. You can see the explosives and the wires all kind of around you. Um, the team sergeant, it turns out, is, is that yoked bodybuilder, big dude. Uh, he's a double <laughs> amp, um, severe head trauma. He's not uh, – he's in and out of not even consciousness, just something. Um, the best way I can describe it is he was actually fighting for his life because he was fighting us the entire way. That's kind of the best I can do it. Um, so we start – moving him down and we're literally at the point where we're stepping over not to be too graphic. We're stepping over pieces of other people to get to somewhere we can, uh, get him pulled out of there. Um, you know, to kind of straddle and things, try not to let the other guys, his other teammates see it. Um, I send up two of my guys on the hoist with him. And I remember sitting there, they get him on the skid kill, get him hoisted. And he is like, I look up <laughs> at the hoist and he is fighting them the entire way. Like his arms are swinging, the thing is spinning, and these, it's like full WWE going up the hoist. This is not good. Um, but they get him in. Uh, they trust. I trust the guys up there. They're, they're going to start working him. Um, they hover around, and we decide, okay, we can we can go over the hoist for these last these last two guys. Uh, so I send one up the hoist. It's just me and the two guys down there. I send one up the hoist by himself, and then the bird comes around to pick me up, and uh, and the last survivor. And uh, again, we're doing these super high hoists, um, which turns out to be fortunate at this point because you get pretty used to riding the hoist, and uh, it's kind of got a pace to it. And all in, about halfway up the hoist, I'm, I'm working with this patient. I've got him in the uh, in the strop, so he's just kind of got the bear hug around him. I got him. All of a sudden, we went faster than I've ever been on the hoist, which I'm just <laughs> something's going on. I don't know what. And normally, we get to the door. I'll, we'll plant our feet at the bottom of the door, put a hand on, lock eyes with the, the FE, kind of get a nod, and they'll put the slack in so you can dive into the aircraft. Um, there was none of that. We got up to the door, and he just grabbed me, and, you know, we went to the floor. So, um, you know, nothing I can I'm just hugging him. Turns out we were, while I was going up, the aircraft was coming down. They had, lo they had lost lift and were falling uh, out of the sky. Um, the, the pilot actually called to shear the hoist with us on it. Uh, the FE decided we were close enough. He just jammed it full throttle and pulled us in, which Holy shit. happened to work out. Um, but because of the, that V cut, the helicopter, the wheels and the rotors were only a couple feet off the ground by the time we managed to get out of there. Um, and it was pilot skill, hundred percent. He, uh, he let it slide backwards on its tail and rotated the aircraft and managed to get enough left to pull us out. Um, Wow. Pure skill. Um, but from there we ended up, uh, we worked the team sergeant for the next 45 minutes or so going back. A lot of it being at a certain point, just CPR. Uh, that's all yeah. we had left. There was uh, really nothing there. And, uh, <laughs> uh, we're headed back and it was one of the situations you see in a movie where 
like we're running out of gas and there's ranges around Kandahar and they don't want you to fly through the ranges. And, uh, and we called up and said, hey, we're, we need a straight in. We're, we're coming in. We're out of fuel. And we get this. I can't authorize that. And I got in front of ICS. <laughs> I actually heard the pie that go, what? I, it, it, it clicked. <laughs> we uh, land, land the bird right by the roll three at Kandahar. Um, still just throwing everything we've got at this guy, uh, trying to trying to keep him alive. He's still alive. Um, and uh, we get him into the hospital. Found out later, he unfortunately, he had massive, uh, his brain was hemorrhaging out of his skull. Mm. So um, he, he did not end up making it. Um, but uh, come back out to the aircraft and the birds shut down, which normally they would, they'd sit there and wait for us to come back out. We'd hop over to the other side of the airfield where our gas and our, our HLZ was. We couldn't do that. We had that little gas. Yeah. <laughs> bring wow. the fuel over from the other side, fuel up the plane just so we could fly it across the runway uh, to, to get the rest of the gas and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, I, I get back in and because we're a bunch of assholes to each other, as I walk in the door, there's a meeting, there's already comics drawn of me as King Kong pulling the helicopter out of the sky on the hoist. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, it, it was, it was interesting to, at, the, at the time for me, it wasn't, it was just another day. Yep. Um, it was a little bit of stuff going on, but it was, it was another day and we're doing what we're doing. Um, yeah, there was explosives and, people, parts, and all the other stuff going on. Um, didn't really think much of it. Um, it was uh, the hardest part of that whole experience is actually that that unit was across the street from us. Uh, on yeah. the bay. And they came yeah, out. I, know, I, was in, I was in Kandahar, man. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're, they're, the SF compound right there is like, damn, I think it's like 50 feet from where the, uh, where the, where the roll three is. It's, it's right yeah. there. So th- this wasn't even SF, guys. This oh, okay. One on the other side of the airfield at the time we moved over there, where the where dust off and Pedro was. Um, so these guys are just on just behind us, and um, oh, geez. They, the team came over the next day and said, "Hey, we, we want to come over and, and we want to know what happened to our team chart." And this was like their team chart. They loved this dude. Um, and one of the hardest things I've had to do in my career was that day when I had to sit down with that team and tell them how their team chart died. Um, to this day, it's one of the hardest things for me to think about, um, sitting there, yeah. you know, and going through that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we did that. That was like mid midway through the, the deployment. Um, and then like th- four years later, I randomly find out I'm getting a DFC. <laughs> no idea. That was 40 years later. Yeah. So I, I was, I was an instructor at the dive school in Panama city at the time, and I just, I'd gone up for my paramedic refresher and I'm sitting in the living room of a guy named Wayne Fisk. And if you haven't Googled Wayne Fisk, Wayne Fisk was a Sante Raider PJ who's got more stories from a Tuesday than most of us have for our entire lives. And uh, <laughs> he, was, he, he ran this course and he would have us over and cook us all dinner one night. And uh, one of the chiefs at the time, so we're all sitting there and said, hey, so we're in the presence of one of the newest DFC winners, you know, in the PJ community. Oh, cool. And I was like, it's you. I'm like, what? And I've been listening to Wayne Fist stories all night about how, you know, these insane things he did just because it was Tuesday. Um, And they're like, so so tell us the story. I'm like, please don't make me do this. (laughs) I picked the guy up. There was a little bit like, no comparison. Um, And, uh, but yeah, it was just randomly, I want to say it was like four years later. Um, It just randomly popped up out of nowhere. Uh, they were doing that. So weird. <laughs> wow, man, that's pretty amazing. That's uh, so yeah. we, you know, we've interviewed some guys with some awards, right? And we know we all collectively know a bunch of guys with awards. How did you take? How, how did you take that, man? How did you take the award? I mean, like, were you like in denial? Were you kind of like, shit, I don't deserve this. I, I want to turn this thing in. Like, like you know, because like. I know for myself, the guilt associated with it to some degree. Um, how, how have you taken getting that award? Uh, honestly, I, I, to this day, I don't, I don't feel like I did anything. Right. Like I, I, I was like, my job was to go there and do that. 
my job was to find that second chance and try and give it to them. That's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what the team did. Um, and one of the things that, that bugs me is I've never been able to figure out um, just because I've lost communication with some people. I want to know, did the rest of the team get, what did my team members get? Like, did they, did I get singled out because I was the team leader? I don't know. I haven't had a chance to find out. Um, and that, that bothers me because um, I've, I've seen that happen before. Um, I didn't do anything special, anything remarkable. I just went out and, you know, did PJ shit and came home and yeah. you know, then we move on to the next day. So, um, yeah, I, to this day, I don't feel like it was anything special, anything noteworthy. Somebody did somewhere. Um, and it's taken me years to kind of accept on behalf of the legacy of the career yes. field to accept it yes. on that part as, as their ability to say, no, we are out doing good things. Um, I don't consider it mine. Um, I consider it belonging to them and, and then that legacy that, that we build through all the good things we do. Um, and that, but that took me years to wrap my head around, to be honest. I had the caveat at exactly that brother, my, they let me choose two people to present mine to me. And one of those was my company commander who was replacement company commander in Fallujah 04 at this time. And Literally, when we were doing it, he was like pinning the fucking thing on me. He knew my angst and my gripe and my conscious about it. You know, I, I didn't really want it. And he was like, hey, dude, this isn't for you. He's like, this is for your community. It's more importantly, your family that's behind you and sitting down on the stands. Like, this is for your hometown. This is for your nieces and nephews. So once he said that, it made me it took like the, the, the weight of it and spread it out, I guess I should say amongst other people. And at that point I was like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's more tolerable, I guess. So yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And what they said was, was, was what I agree with too, man. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's literally sitting in a cardboard box somewhere. I think it's in my closet <laughs> or my attic. I don't even know really where it is. Same. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think, I think most guys, man, don't, don't take that stuff and put it up someplace. Same thing, like all of us. I'm like, I don't, honestly, I don't even quite know where most of my stuff is. You know, you know, I, I disagree with you on that one, dude. <laughs> I, know I, I have seen guys put stuff up, but I think in general, yeah, like I don't got, yeah, I don't, I, my, like all my medals and ribbons are together because I, I had to wear them for, I think I went to a Marine Corps ball and had like this stuff still on the uniform in a bag someplace, you know, yes. it's just like, okay, great. You know? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about the DFC is it's one of those, it, it has a license plate. It has, you know, things. My wife's like, are you going to get the license plate? No. Fuck no. No. Same. Yes. No. <laughs> and you, you see him, dude, as a veteran, you know, you're driving down the fucking road and you're like, thanks for your service, homie. You know, it's like, it's like yeah. he's got it. I don't know what they call it in the Air Force, but ERB, your service record, yeah. Marine Corps SRB. I don't yeah, know. What they they yeah, they got their whole back play. It's like their whole fucking DD 214, dude. It's like, thank you, Steven Seagal. I appreciate your, your service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I uh, for listeners out there, there's a, you know, I don't think I was ever fascinated with ribbons. And to this day, I've always been the shitty dude. Yeah. Like, I fucking can't tell you what's on your chest, dude. I don't memorize what those fucking things mean. Yeah. Even the ones that I'm authorized, I couldn't tell you what most of them are on my chest, right? Like I've worn them like three times in my life. I don't fucking do Marine Corps balls. I've done like one or two. Like I'm, a, I, I'm I hate that side of the military. So it's like, but there are guys that are ribbon metal hunters. We know those dudes in every community. And it's like what you went through to achieve yours, right? Like it's, you didn't do it to achieve. It's not like, I think a lot of civilians think it's like gold medal, second place, third place. Like that's not it, man. It's like, it's an accommodation for doing your job and excelling in that, that time, that moment, that hour window of when the shit hit the fucking fan, did you perform? And you did, you know? And, and I, I do question, man, do you, do you know the guy that, that passed away, the team sergeant by chance, you know, his name or his story? Uh, I, I do know his name. Um, don't have to say it, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm never, I'm not going to, never going to forget his name. Um, that one was, was burned in. Um, yeah. cause not only did we, I, I never met him before that moment. Um, but 
you know, uh, not only did we talk to his team after, but they held his memorial across the street. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were, we were there for that. So, um, yeah, that one was, that one's in my head forever. There's, there's, there's few names and few scenarios that are just there. And that is, that is one of them that I will never forget. Um, I'll tell you, brother, sure. as a well, fellow, as a fellow combatant arms guy, man, I, Myself and three or four other guys volunteer were the only recon unit in Fallujah 04 in this area that had Zodiac rafts. There was a grunt unit that sent one of their dudes to swim across this canal. He drowned. He was 18. He was a PFC. We were doing hydrographic surveys, basically swimming down, trying to find this dude. We found him, pulled him up. And for whatever reason, this is early in 04, uh, early in the deployment, I didn't remember the dude's name. But I've thought about this kid that we pulled out at 18 years old. I was only 24 at the time, and it haunted me. And I finally got his name a year ago. And I spent obsessively, I think I told Patrick about this, days and weeks online Googling obituaries. I found this kid's brother, and I talked to talked to his name's William Carey, and I talked to his brother, and I called his dad in Alaska. They had no idea what happened. They reached out to the Marine Corps for years trying to get details. And they Marine Corps wow. basically made up made up some bullshit story. They had no idea that he that he drowned. They had no idea that we, a recon unit, picked him up. No fucking idea, man. So I guess my point is, dude, if you ever get to that point in life, and I'm not saying you might even have closure with the dude, but like, you know, like reaching out to the dude's family and you were there. You know what I'm saying? And and his last moments and that it could be a lot for that family too. Cause I, I talked to the mom, I talked to the dad and the brother and it, the brother was in tears about it, brother. Like, like he, it, he, every day has been thinking about this for 20 years and now it, it's like, he can kind of move on with his life. So I guess my point, I know we're going real deep here is, is uh, you might want to look into that at some point in your life is, is a dude that's kind of been there in a crazy situation. No, it's actually not a bad idea. It's something I may have to uh, look into. And I got a little free time on that. Um, yeah. I, I have had one one member of that unit come very close to reaching out for that. Like the, the feelers were coming to the community, identifying me and things. He never closed the loop on it, and I kind of left it to him to either close that loop or not. And he decided not to. But uh, I hadn't thought about reversing that loop. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, take the military out of it. Just a uh, two Yanks in a foreign land. You know, a, a brother, like, fuck the branch, you know, like, like a, another dude that, you know, was his last moment on life. And you, you happened, your paths crossed that moment, you know, so yeah, yeah no pressure by any means, brother. But uh, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> it, it helped me out, man. I mean, it's something I thought about for years. So, yeah, that's a fucking story, bro. Obviously, man, you, you continued on through your career. It's crazy that that happened four, four years later, somebody decided to, uh, to bestow that honor upon you. And, uh, but did you, you ever have any other deployments after that, after your, that Afghanistan deployment? Uh, no full blown deployments, a couple small trips to support various things. But, uh, so shortly after that trip, um, was when I was sent to dive school to be an instructor there. So, Four years in uh, Panama City. Um, I'm sure, you're familiar nice. with. I actually got to go through the uh, the SWIC uh, dive med tech course uh, over there, um, and then uh, so four years there, and then I moved out to AFSOC. Uh, and at that point, I was senior NCO, so really more of that you know senior NCO roles and everything. Uh, doing a lot of training and things like that, supporting getting getting the guys who are still you know craft medded out the door. We've we've talked to another Marine that um, had been a Raider, and he got out through this through the Skill Bridge program, and kind of talked to us a little bit about that. He did some construction stuff, some interesting stuff. So, talk to the people who aren't aware what that process is and what the Skill Bridge program is from the military, and and you know your process for getting out and where you're at now. Yeah. So, um, the Skill Bridge program is after going through is I think one of the greatest things to come out of the tail end of the military um, because it gives you up to six months to go learn 
to be a civilian and hold a civilian job and all the differences between, even if it's the exact same job you think you have now versus the civilian version of it, all the differences um, and really prepare you for that. So I'd, uh, I didn't actually do the skill bridge version of it. Um, I went through a SOCOM uh, parallel to it, which had a little bit different rule set, gave me a little more flexibility uh, that I was eligible for due to some, uh, some medical injuries. Um, is, is what that program works on, but very similar. And I went through a bunch of the skill bridge process before just figuring out which one I was going to do. So um, in short, you get to apply out to companies to be an intern where the DOD is still paying you, the company gets you for free, and you get to learn these skills. And it can be anything from uh, an, I'm just a regular intern at the company uh, to things like uh, boot camps and, you know, a, a print, formal apprentice training courses that have applied to the program that are all qualified, uh, where your commander signs a letter and you're essentially on permissive TDY, permissive duty for that six months, up to six months. Uh, and that, that's what you do every day. You go do that. And uh, so I did that back in, I want to say I started mine in April um, with a company that, um, I, part of my goal when I left being a PJ because I've seen what's happened to some other dudes and I didn't want to struggle through it. I wanted to, I didn't want to continue in the same path. I wanted to turn right yeah. and make a break so that I'm not, because you see so many guys and I got plenty of these offers to be an instructor for this or an instructor for that. Yes, sir. And then you're the guy who's around the teams every day, but you have to cope with the fact that you're not the team anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that just felt painful to me. Um, and so I wanted to make a right turn and go off and do something different, make a separation doesn't mean I won't come back at some point, but I want to do that. So uh, I went back into uh, computer programming, which is awesome. uh, something uh, I finished up my degree last year in computer science nice. um, and uh, found a company that was willing to take me on as an intern. Um, so I did a three month, three and a half month internship with them. And then I went to my terminal leave to finish out my 180 days um, that way. And uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, it turns out it was right out the back gate of Herbert, which was coincidental, but uh, it worked out well for me. Easy. Yeah, it was really easy. Um, so I did my three and a half months with them, and they let me really write my own ticket as to how I wanted to do it. So I got to experience all over the company, see what all different positions were, see what was going on. Um, and really, it also gave me a three and a half month job interview. You know, I got to see the company, and they got to see me because I'm coming in saying, well, I've done some computer work in the past, and I got 20 years of team leadership, which, you know, you guys definitely need some of that over here. You know, you've got managers. And they, there's some there's some striking parallels when you bring it back. It's managing small teams. It's leading people. It's motivating people. There's, there's a lot of bleed over there. Um, and I got three and a half months to show them how that does directly carry over. Uh, so at the end of three and a half months, they, uh, they offered me a position. Um, not one I would have wanted when I first walked in the door, but I managed to learn and figure out what the different roles were. Uh, and so now I'm basically uh, a manager for, uh, for two of the teams at the, at the company. Um, I managed to get a salary that is comparable to where I was with all my bonus pays and things like that. So um, I don't have a, like a, a lifestyle transition I have to worry about. My family is still taken care of. Um, and yeah, the company has been great so far. Uh, and one of the better, I can't stress that I'm, how important that was in making that transition, making it comfortable uh, and easing into that. If you, if you can all take advantage of it, um, absolutely do it. And, uh, you know, if anybody with the power to, you know, write the checks up at Congress or anything happens to listen to this anytime, keep this program because it's amazing. Uh, and I can't stress out how valuable it is in that process. Yeah. That's awesome, man. What, yeah. uh, what's the name of the company, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the company is called Beast Code. Um, and their, their thing, they make, uh, what they call digital twins. Um, so like they have a lot of, they do a lot of work with the DOD where, you know, take a boat, take a plane, whatever, take all the systems, parts and pieces, bolts and valves and everything and make a 3d version of it in the computer. Um, and then they, they take wow. that 3d version and they take whatever data you want about the system and they display it on it. So instead of having to look at a dashboard, like in your car, which is gauges and you figure out, okay, oh, oh. There's a tire low, which tire is it? You know, the oil pressure's low. How do, it just lights up on the model. Like, oh, that pump's failing. Or, you know, we need to, we're going to service this one. Or if we take battle damage, this part of the boat, 
it's going to downstream affect all these other things, and you just see it in real time um, in these 3D models. And that's kind of what they do. That data display wow. 3D model is really super cool, to be honest. That, a is, lot of that, applications. Is, that, that is really cool. That sounds really interesting. That's very cool, man. That's that's a very interesting concept. It's yeah, like, uh, very, little 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 futuristic. Yeah, it's it's super awesome though, and uh, it's funny because you know I started out doing this kind of thing in my gap between the army and going to the air force. And I remember when I was going in the trying, you know, working out and getting ready to go into the air force. People said you're going to do what for a living? Like you <laughs> you work IT and you're going to go jump out of airplanes and do stupid stuff for a living? I said yeah. And then I crossed over and I got into the Air Force and I tell people what I used to do. And they say, you do all this? You used to sit in front of the keyboard for eight hours a day? I say, yeah. And now I'm just, that whole cycle has come back to fruition <laughs> uh, when I talk to people. And, you know, I get the same reaction. It's pretty funny. Did, yeah, did the company ask you, they're like, are you going to get bored doing this? We had a lot of conversations over the three months, but um, I don't think that was one of them. Because honestly, they there's a lot of parallels um, that, that really what I'm doing now is just small team leadership. Um, and I don't, and it was really that soft training that enabled me to carry it over. I don't think traditional military leadership training prepares you for some of the dynamic small team business world stuff, but the soft stuff, which is take this little team, solve problems, get them going and have some freedom with it. That's exactly what, what I'm doing now. It's just, it's a different toolbox and it's a different group of people. But it's the same thing, uh, and I've seen a lot of direct translation to that. And I think that that gets overlooked a lot. People undersell uh, their ability to, to translate that stuff. So, yeah. And they think I'm. They also think I'm somewhat insane. So. And you see yourself uh, staying in Florida for a while? Yeah. So my my wife uh, flies MQ nines, um, which <laughs> is, is another interesting story. But uh, so she's in for another couple of years. Um, she's going to be here, uh, so we're not going anywhere for a while. And I like it down here. And my grandparents lived an hour from here. Um, yes, there's some, there's some home roots here, um, so yeah. at least for a while. Uh, we'll have to uh, definitely. Since I'm a fellow Floridian now, man, I've been here for about two and a half years. I'll have to come up, say hi to you. I gotta say, what's up to Jay Sweet? Sometime, I know he's wanted me to come out and help out with some of his schools. And for a for a final story, like some sort of. Uh self-deprecating humor or just an interesting experience you had that doesn't have to be necessarily self-deprecating, but some sort of interesting story you had to kind of close us out. Uh, we yeah. always make the, we always make the joke that, you know, like you come out of this experience, the soft realm of like, you know, amateur weatherman and amateur like comedians, dude, because the shit you see, you got to have the thickest skin and you see the craziest, funniest things. I mean, ever. Yeah. so you got to have something. Oh, there's, there's plenty. Although, if I would know I was going to be doing that, I would have started drinking whiskey. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of our guests do tend to, to have a couple beers. I mean, uh, we're kicking this one off a little early. so Yeah, that was uh, – yeah. Um, now I, I used to joke around that, you know, if, if America knew the truth, they'd rename SoCal and Ringling Brothers, and we're just the, uh, the Lion Tamer show over here. Uh, it's just, it yeah. is. It's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a circus of good intentions and, and trying to get it done. So there's plenty of hilarious stories. For a while, I was running uh, our initial training team uh, out of Vegas. So the guys were coming out of the pipeline and we kind of formalized and said, what I got where, which was, you know, here's your, your task. Go figure out how to train to it. We kind of stood up a group to really get guys over that initial hurdle. And we called it our green team. And uh we got it going pretty well. I was running it. And so we, we had a couple of borrowed guys from other units that they really didn't have that stood up. So they would come hang out with us for a few months and, and get over that home. And we had this one guy. He was a, he was a former college baseball player. Um, his name was Blake. I'll leave his last name out of it for his own protection. Um, Blake was, again, he, he was a clown. You know, hilarious, good worker, but just a clown. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, it was one of these classic moments. I'm, I'm sound asleep one night, Friday night, Saturday night, don't remember. Um, and I get, you know, the phone starts ringing at two in the morning. It's Vegas Metro PD. Uh, and they're down on the strip and want to let me know they've got Blake in the back of the car uh, because he was a little shit based and decided that he wanted to dive into the fountains uh, at the Bellagio or I don't know which, which one of those fountain shows he decided he was going to dive in. And, uh, you know, this guy, I think he was a retired Marine, actually, a former Marine. And he's, you know, 
So he's like, all right, I'll give you a chance to come get this guy. But uh, just so you know, the cops crew was also in my car. Uh, so I managed to get them to turn off the cameras because <laughs> this guy's about to be on cops uh, for acting like a clown. And, uh, Jesus. Holy yeah. shit. So I go down and uh, I pick this dude up. And he, he was down there with a bunch of guys. I'm like, where's the rest of the crew? Like, you know, thanking the cop. We take it, throw him in the car. Where's the rest of the crew? They're like, oh, they're over this casino, whatever. So we go in and we're looking for him. I'm just trying to get him back with these guys so they can get him out of here. Because I don't yeah. really didn't feel like um, I'm like, sit your ass down right here. I'm going to get these guys. I'm going to come back. I come back. He's ordered eight shots of green chartreuse. Oh, God. <laughs> he's over there pounding them. I'm like, I, you know, herding cats in this. Can't find the other guys. So I'm like, all right, dude, get in the fucking car. Ended up taking him back to my house. Um, like, the couch is over there. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to deal with you in a few hours. Uh, so... <laughs> I come downstairs, and uh, he's he's stripped down, butt naked on my couch. Uh, <laughs> and the dude, because he was a transplant, he's sunburned like he had gotten sunburned, so he's peeling all over my couch, like oh, there's just skin all over the couch. Oh god! And of course, my girlfriend, now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, is the first one downstairs. Like, why is there a naked guy flaking off all over the couch? Oh. <laughs> So he just, you know, I go down, wake up. He's, hey, let's, let's, you know, everything's good in the world. And uh, I remember we ended up, uh, you know, talking like, all right, well, there's two ways we can deal with this. We can go the Air Force way, in which case there's a lot of paperwork and things, and I don't know where your career goes. Or we can go hang out for the next few hours until I decide we're done. <laughs> and uh, we spend the next few hours hanging out, and he sweated out every ounce of alcohol he had, and then some um, <laughs> of his own choice. And, you know, again, we moved on with our lives, but uh, that was that was one of those just you did what the fuck you wanted. Yeah, to I think uh, I think uh, any any special operations unit in and around Vegas would be a little bit dangerous. It, it is. It, it definitely is. Um, yeah, that that's up there. With the toe I almost left on the fence. The Coast Guard gate breaking back into the base of Key West. Um, that was another <laughs> another fun night. That was my own uh, admission because. Uh, if you've been to Key West, there's two gates to the Navy base there. Uh, there's one yep. way down the main gate, and then there's the little Coast Guard gate that has a keypad. There's no guard. Well, that one's by Duval Street. So we didn't want to walk the extra two miles down to this one. Oh, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Where, yeah, where you go you go up Duval and you take a right towards – it's yeah. right by the water there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we would uh, we could go out that gate, but we couldn't get back in it. You could, you could buzz your way out. And uh, so pretty much every Friday, Saturday night, we're just going over the fence. Like we wave the little IR camera and go over the, the fence to get back on. And nobody seemed to actually give a shit. And uh, this one particular night, I may or may not have been slightly shit-faced. Um, and uh, I go decide to go up over the fence. And I get to the top, and it was pouring rain at this point. And I'm straddling the fence. And you just feel that wobble. Like, oh, shit. And just peel off straight down, uh, you know, like 10 feet to the concrete. And somehow my toe and my flip flops managed to just like peel the bottom off. Uh, it was still there, but just by a little thread. Yeah. yeah. Um, I woke up later, passed out under the bridge to Fleming Key, which is that, that little key where dive school actually is, uh, staggered up. And then in the morning, Monday, uh, they did our morning stand up. And, you know, before we go to PT, the, the, the sergeant out there going, okay, anybody got injuries or anything like that or reason they can't do PT? I'm like, uh, I'm kind of missing half my toe. <laughs> like I said, I want to know how the fuck you did it. Um, take this, scrub it till it bleeds, <laughs> then scrub it for a few more seconds, wrap it up, and get your ass back out here. Um, and uh, Dude, we had a recondo uh, by the name of George. Uh Leave his name out. I thought you were going down to the same path of story in in Las Vegas. Uh, there was a group of three or four of us. We lost George, and we just got back from from Fallujah, no Fort. And we we drove from Camp Pendleton to Key West or Key West. Uh, all blend together to Vegas. George gets fucking shit house like we all did, and he climbs the fucking tower with a moat below it, like there on the strip, is it the Bellagio? I don't know what that is either. It's, it's climbs the tower 
where the pirate ship is? I think so. I think so. And this was 04, right? But it was like a Disney fucking looking tower with like water. And it's like a foot deep. So two feet deep. And there's fountains and shit. I wasn't at this spot. Uh, We had to pick him up from the police station the next day. What he did from the police is he climbed to the top of this, passed out up there, fell 30 feet into the moat on his back, passed out. Again, like passed out, like came back, like not hardcore knockout, hit his head, woke up in in the ambulance, started fighting the paramedics like a good Marine does, much like this team sergeant, starts to fight everyone off. And, you know, that was like a fucking Saturday night for us, man. But they stopped the strip. It was like the first time they stopped the strip. Uh, it was it was a mess. But I think they fucking they might have flown him out. I mean, this was 20 years ago, but dude was fucked up. I didn't see him until I lost contact with George. And then I saw him in Northern Iraq when I was working for the agency. Uh, He came in one of these random doors. I'm like, last time I saw you was in Vegas. You were trying to swim in the moat. (laughs) So I'm sure there are countless stories of Vegas uh, with special operators doing some crazy shit. Well, dude, I, I, I don't want to take any more of your time, Tom. This was awesome. I We really appreciate the sit down and uh, get some of your story. And just, I appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. hopefully you get more than uh, five seconds of usable content out of it. But, you know. Yeah, maybe seven. Seven or eight. Uh, all right. All right. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.